Welcome to Europe Chat. Today we will talk about the arrangement whereby EU member states take turns in chairing the meetings of the Council and its working groups, six months each. With 27 member states, this means that every country assumes the presidency once every 13 years and a half. The rotating presidency of the Council has significant symbolic value because it gives each country a sense of responsibility for the Union as a whole. Presidencies have the task of helping the Council to find common positions, even in difficult debates. They also represent the Council in legislative negotiations with the European Parliament. Jim Kloss is TEFSA's Secretary General, who previously served as the Deputy Director General in the General Secretariat of the Council of the European Union. He worked for the Luxembourgish Presidency in 1991 that prepared the draft Treaty of Maastricht and he supported many rotating presidencies in the years that followed. Hello, Jim. Hello, Mary. How many presidencies were you personally involved with? Oh, it's a difficult question because I've lived with presidencies all my professional life, basically. The last 20 years of my professional career, I worked in the General Secretariat of the Council. The core job of the GSC is to support rotating presidencies. But even in my previous incarnations, for instance, when I was an Antici, uh, uh, which means an assistant to the permanent representative of Luxembourg, you deal with presidencies all the time. Or when I was chef de cabinet of the president of the commission, our interlocutors was the rotating presidency. So if you add all of this together through my whole career, which spans about 40 years, I mean, you can say that I've lived through 80 presidencies. When the Lisbon Treaty entered into force in 2009, uh, the EU established the uh, job of the president of the European Council. What has changed since for the rotating presidency? Has it lost power? This is a good question. It, it, It was an important change because, I mean, the idea behind it was that there was a feeling that the rotating presidency was not visible enough, particularly in an area like the head of state or government or foreign affairs. So... It was decided to give a permanent president to those uh, bodies. Now, it was a major change. Why? Well, because, for instance, uh, in our system, the European Council really sets the agenda in the EU, fixes the political direction of where the union is going. And the rotating presidency no longer chairs that body. At the same time, there was a certain uh, breaking of the chain of command because Formally, you see, you had a French presidency, you had the French president who chaired the European Council, the French foreign minister chaired the Foreign Affairs Council, and so on. Now, of course, the chair of the European Council is Mr. Michel, but he is not the boss of the French agricultural minister, for instance, or the Swedish right now, who chair the council. So uh, it has changed things. And uh, basically, uh, it has led to a situation where the key, the core role of the uh, rotating presidency, and it's an important one, is to negotiate legislative deals in so-called trilogues with the parliament, because that's where the rotating presidency speaks for the whole council. It's a very important issue, but you can say that overall, in terms of visibility and influence, yes, the Lisbon Treaty has led to a reduction of the role of the rotating presidency. In that context, does it make sense to keep the rotating presidency at all? Um, The presidency um, lasts for six months, but the legislative processes take typically much longer in the European Union. So 
Would it actually not make sense to have a permanent presidency? No, I, uh, my short answer is no, but I'll explain why. There are basically two reasons for this. Uh, the first reason is that uh, we have the presidency embedded in an overall system. I'll explain what that means in a second. So uh, they're not on their own. And so the fact that they only have six months is not a major problem. And the second reason is more positive. I personally think there are serious advantages to having rotating presidencies. But on the second point, we may come back a bit later. But the first point, let me explain what I mean. First of all, within the council, you have quite a sophisticated system. You have the working group, you have Coripair, the ambassadors, the permanent representatives meeting regularly, a real club. They really hold things together. You have the council. Uh, you have the commission sitting in the council meet. So in other words, within the council, you are very well surrounded and they all help the presidency. The Coripair, for instance, is a bit of a club. So you chair this club temporarily, but the people will help you. The second thing is, and this is closer to home as far as I'm concerned, is that you have, during your presidency, the whole general secretariat of the council who work for you and with you. They help you set up meetings. They advise you on how to run the meeting. They prepare briefings on every issue on the agenda. And during the meeting, they sit to your left, someone from the secretariat and someone from the legal service of the secretariat. So they provide constant guidance during your presidency. You're not alone. And the third point is that uh, overall, the council is one of various institutions. And so you also have the commission, you have the parliament, you have a whole system. And that is why I think uh, the uh, possible drawbacks of having six monthly presidencies is actually not such a problem. Oh, what are the main ingredients for uh, having a successful presidency? What does a presidency concretely do in order to broker a compromise between member states, sometimes conflicting interests? Yes, that's a good question. And uh, I, I have to, to answer with a few different arguments. The first thing to have a successful presidency is a frame of mind. You have to be aware of the fact that you're not chairing the union. You chair one institution within the union. So uh, don't think that you own the EU while you chair. Uh, the, the, the second reason is that you render a temporary service, six months. So don't think that you can change the world. And the third reason is, uh, and this is an important one, you have to understand that the presidency is not a self-service. Uh, you cannot use the presidency to settle your national interest. It's just not going to work. The second level is the preparation, and there the Council Secretariat helps you enormously. We start preparing presidencies with incoming presidents three to five years before they start. First, yes, first in terms of the infrastructure, training people. The Council Secretariat trains about 800 to 1,000 civil servants of the presidencies at their request. Uh, uh, so uh, it's a long exercise to the... Now, uh, in terms of programming, the program is really, the agenda is more set by the European Council and by the Commission together with the European Council and all of that. But still, you have to prepare this. Now, while you're in the chair, the functioning, you have to be professional, of course. Uh, you have to uh, uh, work with the General Secretariat, who are always with you. Listen to them. It's their core job to do presidencies. Uh, 
they do it all the time. So don't try to invent things and to sort of try and be cleverer. And then, of course, it's very important that you empower the people who represent you. For instance, you have someone, let's say you have the chair of Corope. There's a meeting. After the meeting, a, ch a good chair concludes and says, here are the conclusions I draw. Now, if he or she gives the impression that he or she has to consult the capital before drawing the conclusions of the meeting, all credibility is gone. So you have to empower the people uh, you are working with. Uh, and then, of course, for the reason I gave before, you have to invest massively into relationships with the parliament, with the commission, with the other member states. It's a huge work also behind the scenes. So that basically makes for a successful presence. Well, Jim, how do you define the successful presidency? Now, we've talked about what makes a successful presidency, but how do you define it? That's a good question. I would say that the Lisbon Treaty has changed things there because before you would judge a presidency on the agenda they set, on the way they manage crisis situations and all of that. That is now being done in the European Council, which they don't share, actually. So uh, the criteria have changed. I think the main criteria nowadays is the way you conduct the legislative negotiations, because this is really important. The EU is a superpower in terms of regulation legislation. That requires a lot of work. We have a co-decision procedure, commission making proposals, and then you need an agreement between Parliament and the Council. And that negotiation takes place on the basis of a mandate the Council gets, uh, which is called a general approach. And in the famous trilogues, you know, the presidency has a key job. Now, even here, things are not simple. So people would say, okay, we calculate the number, we measure the number of legislative deals finally concluded under the presidency, and that's the hallmark of a presidency. But that's too simplistic, because as you said before, a legislative proposal goes over at least 18 months. So... Uh, it depends on the cycle you're in. The upcoming Belgian presidency will only have three months to negotiate things, but they will have a lot of agreements because it's the end of the cycle. Many things are still out there to be decided. They are well prepared and everybody wants to conclude. If you come after the Belgian presidency, the presidency which will come then, the Hungarians, they will have no legislative success because the whole process starts. You need a proposal by the commission. and all of that. So for me, it's as important that you well prepare, for instance, the general approach in the Council. It's as important as doing the final deal with the Parliament. So uh, you have to have a certain way of looking at things. And then, of course, uh, you also have to uh, think about crisis management. If there is a crisis, how do you manage this? For instance, uh, when the Croatians had their first presidency, they were confronted not just with COVID, but also with an earthquake at home. So how do you manage this? With COVID, they reactivated a uh, crisis mechanism, which is called the IPCR in the Council, and they made it work. That is a success for the Croatian presidency. So there are various ways of measuring it. And then, of course, you must never forget that there's always a part of luck or absence of luck, uh, because you can be confronted with a political crisis at home during presidency. You can have war breaking out in your neighborhood. You can have a COVID crisis. You can have all kinds of things. So you have to be a bit modest. You know, you have to adapt. And the success is of the presidency is defined by how well you adapt. How much leverage does a presidency have 
uh, to influence the decisions in the council according to their own specific national interests. And are there any countries that do that more than yeah. the others? Miriam, they shouldn't go anywhere near that because that's a recipe for not having a good presidency. And the member countries understand this. Uh, it's not a self-service. Uh, it's in many ways the worst time to push your national interests. It's actually the time when in order to convince the others to make compromises that you are supposed to show the way and to compromise on some of your national positions. Uh, I find it always a bit comical when the Germans happen to have the presidency during the end stages of the MFF negotiations about the financial perspectives, you know. It always costs them more money than they would have had to pay otherwise because as a presidency, they felt obliged to show the way. So it's not the time to do that and it just will not work. On the other hand, you will benefit from a good presidency after your presidency because you will have acquired a lot of experience. You know far better how the union functions. You will have created goodwill and trust. And that will help you push your national interests after your presidency. Well, sometimes it is said that the um, smaller member states are better at presiding the council because they can more easily set their specific uh, national interest aside. Does your experience confirm this? I'm a bit tempted as a Luxembourger to say, yes, 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 we are far better. More seriously, it is true that uh, smaller presidencies have some advantages. For instance, shorter chains of command. Or uh, they have people who, because they don't have so many people, they have people who have horizontal experience. They have to do many things. They know how the system functions very well. I sometimes say it's better to chair a working group to have someone who really knows how the EU system works rather than to have a top expert in the field. Okay, that on the other hand, the bigger countries have more people, they sometimes have more clout, so it's balanced, you know. I mean, I, you don't, you shouldn't draw uh, general conclusions on, you know, good presence is small, bad presence is big. That's simply not the way it works. Jim, we have a question from the audience. Mahmoud Javadi asks the following, and I read it out. How do powerful EU member states like Germany and France exert influence in agenda setting with when smaller, less powerful member states assume the rotating presidency? So you have in a way already answered the yeah. question. I, I would say uh, they do exactly what every member state does. Uh, you uh, negotiate with the presidency, you try to put some pressure on the presidency, whether it's small or big, doesn't make any difference whatsoever. And at the same time, you use Corribert to present your opinions or the council. You use the European Council at the highest level for your president or your prime minister to make the points. It's a constant negotiation. And so I do not think that qualitatively anything changes whether the presidency is smaller or big. It's the same pattern. What is interesting for the small countries is when you have the chair, because of this, you will get far more calls from the Bundeskanzleramt or the Elysee or Matignon than you get in normal times. They will all talk to you because you have the presidency. You do represent the council at that moment. So it gives you a real boost. So uh, uh, I think the French and the Germans, like all the others, have many ways of getting their views heard. I would even say, uh, I, I don't reveal a secret, but they would also talk to uh, the their national their not their representative in commission but the national from their country who is in the commission uh, not to put pressure but simply to better understand and also uh, maybe spread some 
of your national sensitivity in the commission. That's entirely, entirely logical. So it isn't, uh, it's a, my question is a bit general, but because it's a constant thing of trying to influence, discussing, having asides, having bilaterals in the capitals, and uh, that doesn't change whether the presidency is a small country or big. Jim, in the second half of 2024, it is Hungary's turn to assume the rotating presidency of the Council. Now, the European Parliament recently adopted a resolution which repeats the long-standing concerns about the rule of law in Hungary, and it calls the Council to, and I quote, find a proper solution as soon as possible. What do you think the Council could do as an institution? Um, what are the risks of having the presidency held by a country which is increasingly in breach of EU norms? The short answer is nothing. They should do nothing. And I'll explain why. First of all, as far as the rule of law is concerned, we have specific, a specific article in the treaty, which is Article 7, uh, and uh, which is being exercised, but which has never led to a decision because there was simply no agreement to do so. Uh, you cannot sort of use those institutional things to, 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 to replace those systems. That's the first thing. The second thing is that the principle of an equally rotating presidency is enshrined in the treaty. And my third point is that the order of the presidency is set by the European Council. The European Parliament has zero role in deciding who should chair the Council. None. Uh, and so I don't think the council should do anything. Why? Because I also think, apart from those more legal constitutional uh, questions, I think politically uh, and generally speaking, it would be a bad idea. It would open a can of worms. If you start doing that, I'm absolutely convinced that you will have soon other contestations of rotating presidencies. You will create a kind of destabilizing factor and it's not going to work anyway. So I strongly, strongly advise against uh, going down this route. I would also conclude by two other remarks. The first one is, as I explained before, the presidency is well surrounded. The presidency does not have a huge autonomy. And so uh, the fact that uh, there are problems with the rule of law in Hungary or in other countries, incidentally, or other big problems does not prevent you from running the presidency. And if I dare say so, to the risk of shocking some people, uh, uh, I was closely involved in the Hungarian presidency in 2011, and I have to say it was a very good presidency, actually. Jim, we have another question from the audience. If you are tasked with proposing an alternative to the EU's rotating presidency, what would it be in order to enhance the efficiency of EU decision-making? Uh, Miriam, the question sort of assumes that uh, the rotating presidency has major flaws and we should change it. I do not share that view, as I've explained before. Uh, uh, but let me say why I think uh, there are very positive aspects to the rotating presidency. Uh, the first one is that it creates trust. It's very different when you're sitting in the council and the guy who chairs the meeting is one of yours. You know it will be your turn sooner or later. It makes you think uh, that maybe I should be a bit more constructive because how am I going to run the council if I behave like some are now behaving or like I behave presently? You see, that's very important. And 
I, I, I will be very honest with you. If we had only permanent presidencies, so they would not be linked to the member states like that, I think you would have a risk of reinforcing a tendency which you have already there, which is when something goes badly, the people in the capital say, that's Brussels. In that case, they would feel completely free to say, that's Brussels, it's not us. Whereas now you can say, you are a core part of Brussels because the council is a core institution and you chair the council from time to time. So that's the uh, first reason. The second reason is, I like the rotating presidency principle because it shows that the member states are treated equally, small ones, medium ones, and big ones. I think that's a major asset. The third reason is that it injects dynamism into the system. You see, uh, uh, I worked for the council secretariat. I worked definitely more than 40 hours a week, but I could not work 70 hours a week. That is what people do during the six months, the key people of the presidency who run the presidency. It's a major, major investment. You could not keep that if you were doing this on a permanent basis. So it injects dynamism. It also injects some new ideas. For instance, uh, we have the habit of sometimes uh, having the European Council organizing informal meetings in the capital of the rotating presidency. And that allows the rotating presidency, together with the president of the European Council, to put on the agenda issues they are particularly interested in, and they have some expertise. The Estonians on digital, the Austrians on internal security, the Croats or the Bulgarians on the Western Balkans. That's also an asset. Um, the uh, next point I, I wanted to mention is um, having a presidency allows you to really get to know the European Union. Uh, and it's particularly important for the newer countries, you know, because before you don't see behind the scenes. You don't know how the council secretariat works, for instance, if you just sit in the council. You have to know uh, how it works. So that's an enormous asset which will be stronger. And, for instance, the Swedes had some trouble, you know, because they have a very different system uh, to get used to it. Once they had run their first presidency, they became, they had, were a different actor because they understood it. And the last point is, a rotating presidency is a very good opportunity to communicate Europe to your own people. So, in balance, I know there are some drawbacks, but for me, the advantages of the rotating presidency outweigh the disadvantages. I think it was right to have a permanent presidency in the FAC and in the European Council because those are highly visible posts, also dealing with the outside world. It's very difficult for Americans or Chinese or others to understand, uh, uh, you know, what is this? I mean, every six months, a new interlocutor. So I think I defend it, but I would not defend it for the bulk of the council. Jim, do you have a recollection of a presidency that was very peculiar? Yes, in a way, but it's, it's, it's a kind of, it's a very difficult question. Uh, uh, it's a very difficult question because I've seen so many things and picking out one or two, uh, it's, it's very complicated. The first thing I'd like to say, uh, maybe is, and uh, uh, it goes with what I said before about the presidency being part of a system. If you look back, if I look back over my career, I cannot say that there was one presidency which was a complete failure. And this is interesting. Why? Well, because the system does not allow you to be a failure. Uh, that's a very strong uh, uh, characteristic of the European Union. Now, talking about, uh, 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 you know, playing major roles, this was more, it was easier to answer that question before Lisbon. You see, because you had 
this high visibility of the European Council. I remember, for instance, in 1994, the Italians were preparing the mandates for the upcoming IGCs, which were leading to the Lisbon Treaty. And there was a big problem with Mrs. Thatcher, of course. And the Italians, in the course of the night, invented uh, something quite extraordinary, because everybody assumed this had to be decided by unanimity. And the Italians said, but no, this is a procedural question, and according to the treaty, simple majority. So they outvoted the Brits, the Danes, and the Greeks to launch the IGC. I mean, that was... Or you can go back a bit further. In 1984, you know, the union had been plagued, or the community at the time, with the Thatcher rebate. I want my money back and all that. Fontainebleau, 1984, the French sorted out that problem uh, and invented the rebate. Uh, you can say maybe it was a regressive uh, decision, but it helped the union for a long number of years to function. So you have a certain number of things. Uh, then I would say um, there was a Czech president in 2008. This was more anecdotal, but they asked an artist, as you know, you sometimes do, to put a piece of art into the Justice Lipsius building, the, the council building. And so they put up a big board and uh, they said, we have asked 20, all the artists, uh, one artist from each country, to symbolize their country. And some of the symbols were actually a bit shocking, you know. So, so some of the member countries were not pleased at all. Well, in the end, it turned out that Czech artists, without telling anybody, had invented it all, including the national artists. And so it led to a huge debate in the council. I thought that was uh, very funny. And I would conclude maybe with, uh, I mentioned the Croats before, I mean, first Croatian presidency. And they had prepared, they had done all the things. And then two things happened. COVID changes everything. No more meetings, physically, except Korybe. And then they had a major earthquake in their capital which destroyed part of their ministry. I mean, what can you do? And the very last point is sometimes you have positive surprises. When the Belgians had their president in 2010, people were saying, oh, this will be problematic because they didn't have a real government at the time. You know, they were still negotiating. So they had a government which was what the French call affaire courant. How are they going to run the presidency? The answer is brilliantly because they didn't have a full government. It meant that all the ministers who couldn't decide anything nationally. They could concentrate for six months on the EU. And they had more of a margin of maneuver to actually defend the common interest. So you sometimes have uh, positive surprises. That was one. Well, thank you very much, Tim, for sharing your experiences with us. Uh, and thank you all for watching. I had a pleasure to speak to our Secretary General, Jim Claus, who is also a former Director General at the General Secretariat of the Council of the European Union. We will be back with further episodes of Europe Chat soon. This podcast is co-funded by the European Union. The European Commission support for the production of this podcast does not constitute an endorsement of the contents which reflects the views only of the authors and the Commission cannot be held responsible for any use which may be made of the information contained therein.